Hi. Hello. You're back with us. <laughs> <laughs> we Voyage are here. to First Vintage. Voyage to Welcome first to this week at week's vintage. episode. <clears throat> Guess what? This is episode twenty. What what? Is yeah. that how that thing goes? Bow, bow, bow. Oh. Yeah. I don't I know. You want to do it? Whatever rhythm up. you got with it. I don't keep up with what's hip with the new trend. You know, the reggae horn. That's right. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I like it. All right. You well, want to just dive into it? Well. Before we just trail off and have nothing else to say. <laughs> I mean, dive into what what's coming up. Yeah, uh, we've yeah. we've wanted to diversify a little bit. Yeah, we wanted to broaden our horizons as far as who we're talking to, um, both on the show and personally, so we can learn more from a broader range of people. So we're moving not completely away from, but a little bit away from just people who own and run wineries to people who are in different portions of the industry. Yeah, we're just trying to diversify this podcast and, and be as inclusive mm-hmm. as possible. Yeah. Well, and along with that, the people we'll be talking to on this episode in the future, and actually with uh, Justina Silla as well, are people with different backgrounds than ours, but also who work in a lot different facets of the industry than we have experience in. Yeah. So it's, I mean, not to be, I don't know selfish about it but it helps us out a lot in the sense that we learn something new about the industry but it also helps broaden our horizons and start some new conversations um about just people with different backgrounds in the industry how they see the industry how it you know how their experience is different than ours and Um, honestly guys like i'm learning a lot we are learning a lot mm -hmm. and we really hope that you guys are too like I feel like it's it's really important to not shy away from the harder decision or not decisions, harder discussions yeah. that we're having on this podcast and and just and we growing. are by no means like the podcast for hard discussions. No, no. We just thought it would be good for us to to learn yeah. to you know sit down, talk with some people, listen to some people, get their their thoughts on things, um, yeah. how they you know their experiences. So we can kind of internalize that and go forward being, you know, better suited, better prepared to be inclusive and, you know, just. Business owners. Yeah. As business owners, yeah. Yeah, and just people. Right. It's not just going to be our business that's Well, I'm saying, like, like as business business owners, we have this responsibility to you know be inclusive to not only the people mm-hmm. that we may hire in the future but anybody that walks through our doors yeah and that's really what what we want to pro- portray yeah so well not just portray that's what we want to do yeah that's how we want it to be yeah we don't want it to be a facade we want it to be yeah exactly that's, we want that right. to be how it is yeah for anyone who walks in yeah, anyone who's interested, anyone who wants to learn something, who who wants to reach out to us, we want them to feel comfortable to send us an email, send us a text, give us a call, stop by. Yeah. You know, be in touch, get in touch. And we want to open up those channels of communications to make it so that people who don't usually have the opportunity, or at least that 
people in our industry don't normally reach out to are reached out to. Yeah, for sure. And included and given Definitely. a chance. Yeah. But anyway. But this off week. the heavy stuff. Yeah. So this week we decided that we wanted to reach out to David Scheidt of, of Master Scheidt Family Sellers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we heard that David is a self-taught winemaker and wine owner and has no formal education um, in winemaking. And that's when I was like, hey, we really need to talk to him because, you know, this is a journey that, you know, we're undertaking. We don't have any formal education. We are mm-hmm. all, or both, <laughs> not all, we're, we're yes. both getting into this industry where we're going to have to learn by doing because, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't. We weren't taught winemaking in school is basically right. what Danielle's saying. And we're going to have to pick that up along the road. And he actually was someone who Justine, thank you, Justine. Thank you, Justine. Hey, Jay Rose suggested that we should talk to because mm-hmm. of that exact same thing that, you know, we don't have the formal training and neither did he, but he made it work and he gave us lots of uh, good insights. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So before we just tell you everything that we talked to him about, We'll get into the interview. Here we yeah. go. Yeah. Enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome to Voyage to First Vintage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Danielle. I'm James. And today we are sitting down with David Scheidt of Mastro Scheidt. Um, is it wineries? Well, it is a winery, yes, uh, but we, we named it Mastroshite Family Cellars. Mastroshite Family Cellars. I should really redo that. <laughs> I feel terrible for that. No, that's fine. I did come unprepared. <laughs> um, David, you are the winemaker and owner of Mastroshite Family Cellars, is that right? Yes, correct. Awesome. I do all the work. So good. So I actually got in contact with you uh, from talking to Justine Osilla, who we had in our podcast last week. Um, I was telling her that I was feeling a little bit insecure from, you know, not having a background in wine, not having any formal education. And, you know, James and I are kind of jumping right into this journey of owning a, a winery and we're trying to own. Yeah. And <laughs> in looking at Custom Crush this harvest. So mm-hmm. um Justine had told me that you are all, you know, completely self-taught and an amazing winemaker and that I definitely needed to talk to you. <laughs> no, well, well, thank you for that uh, introduction. Thank you, yeah. Justine, if you will be listening. But uh, <laughs> she's absolutely correct. I, uh, I am not formally trained. I have a degree in finance. And uh, so you guys are already, you know, way ahead of the game. Since it sounds like uh, biology and, and, and some lab work, uh, which I have none of that either. Uh, like I said, all, all my work was in finance, so I'm uh, a numerate. Oh. But um, the, the, the real trick is, is that in, in my case, I had a real uh, affinity and avocation for uh, food and wine uh, together. And I, and I cook in the kitchen a lot. My mom uh, is an excellent cook, and so you know, growing up in in an Italian or at least half Italian family, and, and uh, she was cooking all the time. So I learned a lot there, sort of the basics. So when you mm-hmm. think about making your first pizza dough at, at age five, oh, that's uh, so cute. The, 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 
Right. I have video, which I will, I'm sure, <laughs> just share at some point on, online. But um, th- there's me making a pizza dough, and, and basically what you're looking at is, is yeast eating up, you know, flour, mm-hmm. and in and, and essence, sugar. And, and guess what? You know, you, you get uh, you get pizza dough. Well, mm-hmm. yeast eating up, you know, grape juice. Guess what happens? You get wine at, oh at some basic level. Now, you know, it's not quite that simple, but. Uh, you know, at age five, that was uh, that was my first fermentation. That's crazy. That's an awesome way to think about it. That is, yeah, I've never had anybody compare pizza to wine, and I'm pretty excited about it, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a natural <laughs> pairing, so it's, that's an easy one, right? Awesome. Uh, but yeah, that's that, that, I mean, that's the that's the building blocks, right? It, uh, of 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 a wine at its most base level is is that if you left a bucket of grapes in the sun it would ferment into wine, not very good wine, but it would, <laughs> it would do something. Mm-hmm. And, and so now you say, okay, well, that's where humans need to be involved and, and, and try to uh, manage uh, that fermentation process. And so well, what does that come down to? It comes down to a level of experience and a level of attention to detail and process uh, just like you would with cooking. So a lot of my, my metaphors and, and analogies will come from the cooking world because if you if you uh, cook on a formal basis um, and, and you do that successfully and, and to have a repeatable process, uh, co- cooking the same ravioli, cooking the same pizza, cooking the same sauce for all those things, uh, you need to have a repeatable process. You need to have attention to detail, and and you need to have probably a little bit of natural skill. Uh, but all those same things, all those same things come into in, into making a bottle of wine. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's awesome. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. So that's really yeah. cool. Well, that's a great way to, I don't know, as an inter- introduction for people who aren't in the industry. Mm-hmm. Great way to break it down. Yeah. Um, so how yeah, did you... Because we all got to eat. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. How did you go about gaining experience? I'm assuming you didn't just jump into making your own wine right off the bat yeah tell us about your whole wine experience how you got into wine and how your you you know your education of it grew well not yeah knowledge of it i guess yeah but still yeah it's still an education it's just not in a formal way right yeah it it's it's one where uh so obviously you know for early tasting experiences we're around the table uh, you, you know, when I was young, having, having that background, having that Italian background, guess what? Uh, you, you know, there was wine around the table uh, pre-21, if you could, you know, figure that out. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, once you become of legal age, and then you sit there and you go, okay, well, I'm going to make some choices on what it is that I'm going to, I'm going to purchase, and, and I'm going to try to find out more about this, just like I would, you know, uh, find out more on, you know, how sausage is made. And try to make my own sausage, right? Yeah. So you, you suddenly take a you suddenly take a class at the Culinary Academy in San Francisco on how to make sausage. Oh, you go, That's huh? Awesome. Okay, these are all you know. These are some of the tricks of the trade. Uh-huh. Well, when I when I moved to the Bay Area back in uh, 1997 from from Fresno, California, uh, I was obviously now in much closer proximity to the, to to wine country than I had been, and and at, at that formal level, right? The Sonoma and and Napa level, which is there's a lot more boutique winemakers there than there are in Fresno County. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. Fresno County is generally a much larger production type of facility, mm-hmm. whereas in in uh, Healdsburg, for instance, you can have very you know boutique winery with a couple hundred cases, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah. getting right, so getting to know those folks, getting to know people in the business of wine at a at a much more boutique level. Uh, and and when you're looking at the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, you know Hillsburg and Sonoma County is a very different place. Uh, the access to winemakers and to growers um, was uh, not as limited as it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there were certainly a lot of uh, uh, winemakers and growers that were available in their tasting rooms on a fairly regular basis, and and. They weren't really emphasizing at that time in the late 90s this experience of really going to, you know, let's say three wineries a day and spending three or four hours at a winery and, you know, going through the grounds and all these tastings and pairings and food and, you know, long walks through the vineyard. It was, you know, my brother and I, yeah, and and, and that's how kind of things have changed. But back then, we can go to eight different wineries in a day in Healdsburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, talk with eight different winemakers in one day in a one-on-one conversation for uh, 30 minutes, go through a bunch of wines where, we, you know, you don't drink and you spit them, and you can find out everything about the vineyard, the, the, the winemaking process, what they're doing on their cooperage, all these sorts of things. And next thing you know, you start narrowing down your list. And you narrow down your list of, you know, wow, these, these wines I, I tend to like a lot. Yeah. I tend to like these winemakers a lot. And next thing you know, you, you know, now you're going up and you're spending, you know, a couple hours and then they're going to let you run your tasting room for, you know, two hours while they go get lunch. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was actually the case. There was a couple of guys that, that would say, ah, Dave, you don't mind running the tasting room for an hour, do you? And it's like, no. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is as much about the wines that I do, so you might as well do it. That's so little, awesome. little experiences like that, I think, shepherded the 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 process uh from uh 97 which which is when i moved to the bay area mm-hmm. up until about 2007 which is when i when the the first wine was made for for master shite sellers wow. awesome that's amazing yeah so i have to ask you the first time that you tried wine you were how yeah. old were you <laughs> <laughs> oh i was probably right around that five or six year old age oh my gosh that's awesome and did you like the taste of wine is my second question yeah well there because i think i may have put that on instagram maybe for a father's day um sitting there in a high chair with my dad and i'm pretty sure there was a glass of wine and i'm pretty sure there was a coors beer in there too so that's that's documented uh from somewhere in 1975-ish. Oh, that's so, so sweet. Yeah. I love that it was it was like a, yeah. a family thing that you got into, and, and obviously mm-hmm. your parents enjoyed wine a lot and wanted to share that experience with you. I love that. Yeah, they they, they don't you know they're not a part of the uh, they like they don't have a background in wine. We do, we don't own any land or anything like that. I mean, you know, my my dad was an electrician. Uh, you know, my mom was. Uh, a cook with the city schools. And so, you know, there's no, no formality in any of their uh, training with wine or, or, Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I mean, food obviously, but, but not with wine at all. So it's, uh, 
you know, th- th- this endeavor was was uh, pretty much on my own, you know, as as an exploration. Yeah. And did you have to have time for your palate to develop or did you immediately enjoy the wine that you were tasting and, and just like wanted to get into it more? Yeah, you know, um, back when I, you know, I, I recall some of the early tastings that I would do in Fresno and um, there was uh, one store in particular, which is still around, and uh, they would do tastings on a Wednesday night and uh, it would be 8 to $10. And we would taste usually five wines. And uh, there was most of the people in the room were probably twice my age, so somewhere in their 40s. And we would taste the five wines that were part of the tasting. And then these these other folks would bring out wines from their private cellar. And Mm -hmm. so we might have tried wines that were, you know, a a fair, you know, a fair price, you know, at the time, somewhere in the $20 range. but then these folks would bring out some private seller items, and so I was starting to, to try wines, more exclusive wines, either from France, Italy, or, or the United States, um, back in the early 90s, so, so pre-97. Mm-hmm. And uh, those wines, you know, those sorts of things make an impression because you're, you're tasting wines, you know, now at 21, 22, 23 years old that uh, are still in production today. Awesome. Uh, from yeah. Sonoma County, from Napa, and and from France, and you're sitting there going, "Wow, I I was actually drinking, you know, Chateau Lynchbage at 22 years old, mm-hmm. and it's just because I was in the right tasting group, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, since, 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 you know, I'm 22 year old kid, I'm drinking a you know 500 dollar wine, yeah, yeah. for eight dollars, not bad. Yeah, you know, that's a smoking deal. <laughs> Those days are gone. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So for your winery, do you own your own vineyard or do you um, contract out for fruit? Yeah. So, um, so in, in, and I know uh, at the beginning, at the top of the program, uh, Custom Crush uh, came up. So yeah. uh, one, I do Custom Crush. And awesome. then uh, secondly, uh, I do not own any uh, vineyards. I contract for the fruit uh, each year or have... Mm-hmm. Uh, longer-term contracts, uh, depending upon the vineyard, uh, with growers that I've that I've known um, since I was, you know, drink actually drinking the wine prior to, to, to buying the fruit. So I, I work in a in a way that I don't own any technically plant property or equipment, mm-hmm. but I make I, I am a, a type two winery, which is a which is a winery designation, okay. and I have all the same rights and privileges as any winery, except um, I don't own the, the, the grounds on which I make it, but I have all the rights uh, uh, to everything in that facility okay. and, and make the wines according to the protocols that I design. Oh. Um, and, and, and so those wines are made in a way that I designate. In fact, that's mm-hmm. what the custom crush facility uh, wants because then, you know, I'm on the hook. I'm responsible for mm-hmm. things that are made. They, they may drive the forklift, but you know, and they don't want me driving it because I have no clue how. <laughs> but the the uh, but the actual winemaking itself, uh, the protocols for bringing it in, the, uh, the sorting of it, the, uh, the 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 fermentation protocols mm-hmm. are are all under my designation, not under okay. the, the wineries. Awesome. awesome. Or under the uh, the custom crush facilities. Correct. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's kind of 
you know where where we want to end up i think in yeah except with owning the vineyard property yeah building our own vineyard but um, sure to build sure. off of that how did you go about finding growers that or how do you go about finding growers that you want to work with what are some things that you yeah. look for outside of varietals and location and whatnot um, what are certain yeah. things right. that, that make it high value to you yeah, so, um, you know, when I'm looking for fruit, um, it, access to the land mm-hmm. is, is, is a top priority for me. Uh, you know, I want to see what I'm getting, and I want to be able to have access to, the, to, you know, the area that I'm buying, if, if not the whole vineyard itself, the, the, the rows that are going to be mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that, that those vineyard relationships are not easy to cultivate or find. So in your in your quest, I would say fast pay makes fast friends. Okay. <laughs> and uh, there are a plenty of a grower that have uh, poor experiences of of not being paid uh, timely. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you want to make a, a friend of a grower, pay him on time. Okay. And 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 uh, that word gets around because uh, the next grower you approach is going to ask. Uh, so who else do you work with? Yeah. And sure enough, the first call they're going to make is who your existing relationships are with and mm-hmm. find out if you're paying them on time. Yeah. Okay. So that would probably be one of the big things. Um, and, and then, like I said, just the access to the, to the land, um, the ability to, to pull your own samples uh, mm-hmm. and, and not rely upon a vineyard manager uh, to do so uh, or a private crew or whatever. And, and not as though they're not doing their job, but, it gives you a better sense for what you're looking at and just walking those rows, uh, being able to sample the fruit um, at different times right. uh, as yeah. you approach harvest, I think is, is invaluable. Um, you, you, it, it's tough to sort of do that distance learning mm-hmm. in this particular case mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, suddenly if you got two tons of fruit come in um, on, on the, on the pick day, and you're tasting through your fruit and going, well, this isn't what I expected. Right. Well, how would you know? Because yeah. you haven't been tasting it for the last two weeks anyway. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you got to be the, so that's the hands-on aspect that I don't think can be, um, that can be substituted really. You can't just phone it in. Okay, okay. Yeah. And that's actually exactly what James was saying. He brought up that he wanted to have, you know, access to the vineyards, just like you said. Yeah. And I kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? Like, why would we need to do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes yeah. complete sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're curious, like, if you have, like, a set schedule that you want to go out and, and take samples and test, you know, for... Well, and even based on a certain sprints. sample, you might want to sample sooner, sample again sooner. Yeah. Or, you know, check mm-hmm. on things. If you're from afar and you just get a number, all of a sudden you're going... Oh my goodness! You're trying to scramble the well, because you don't know what's going on. Yeah, and that number, you know, and then that number depends on who's the sampler, and exactly. you know, can you truly, you know, can that person truly take a random sample, or are they biased in their sampling, or are they just plain flat out lazy and taking them from end caps, right? Yep. They don't actually get into the vineyard. So, you know, I, I working with things like Zinfandel or Cabernet, for instance. Um, Again, and those are two two grapes that I work with a lot, and I've worked mm-hmm. with since the beginning. I can go in and take a sample off of a vineyard, uh, off of a vineyard, 
other people take cluster samples. Some people take berry samples. Some people take mm-hmm. both. Um, when do they do that? Do they do that at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 a.m. in the morning? Right. There, there's a lot of variables there. And so yeah. having access to that site is is important, at least to me and, and, and maybe other wine. You know, if you're dealing with 50 tons, maybe it's a little less important. But yeah. if it's the one ton that you're just that you're paying six thousand a ton for and it's going into your premier Pinot Noir or Cabernet, mm-hmm. uh, you might want to pay attention to it. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of good money, mm-hmm. you know, and this might be. So disclosing trade secrets but can we ask you like how how often or how do you decide how often to go and take those samples and like what are what are you looking for exactly and what kind of tests do you do on your grapes yeah so with um you know when when you're doing a field sample for me and let's say let's assume so again we're we're in dry creek valley in healdsburg uh zinfandel uh, in the last uh, 10 years, for me, has been harvested um, either somewhere between September 1st and September 30th. Okay. okay? So you got a pretty wide delta there. Mm-hmm. And on September 1st, it was being harvested in 2017 because it was uh, going to be 110 degrees. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So uh, I was getting out into the vineyard. Um, in August, realizing that we were getting close to harvest, but would have never expected at 110 degree temperatures. Mm-hmm. And since that vineyard in particular is dry farmed, it's not ever going to have somebody come in with a water source. Mm-hmm. So now I know that 110 degrees on a dry farm vineyard in Dry Creek Valley on September 1st tells me that either I'm going to pick it or it's going to shrivel up and die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so... So now you have to make a, a decision uh, because you've got a cab vineyard that's right next door to it that is also dry farmed mm-hmm. and is starting to lose its leaves. And you're going, wait a minute, cab shouldn't be harvested for at least another couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now when you're going out there and you and now you got decisions to make because it's all hand harvested, you're going, which one of these babies I want to go pick first? <laughs> so now you're sitting there because you've got access to a limited crew, and guess what? Everybody else is doing the same thing you are, mm-hmm. and you got several acres to pick. So now you're sitting going, all right, that's an irregular year, 2017, because of the heat. Mm-hmm. And you can take a more regular year, like last year in 2019. Well, now I've got a lot of time to taste, right? Yeah. I can go out into the vineyard many times and figure out, okay, it's a vineyard site that's Cabernet, and it's got a little bit of an undulation in the middle of the vineyard that seems to suck up a bit more water than the top two ends. Um, and you notice that the top two ends of the vineyard are more ripe than the middle of the vineyard. Well, hmm, do I want to pick uh, the top two ends of the vineyard first and the middle part uh, a week later because the middle part's shown a bit of pyrazine and a little bit of green flavor? Whereas the top parts of the vineyard are much riper from a from a phenolic sense, much riper from a, a, a pure bricks number. Mm-hmm. So now the numbers aren't telling me everything because the middle of the vineyard tells me that I've you know I've still got some you know some bricks, but it's got no phenolic maturity at all. Okay. So again, going back going back into the vineyard, being able to taste the entire vineyard, and then making an assumption or an assessment based upon if I pick the whole thing at once. What kind of a result am I going to get? And now it's cheaper because now I can get the crew all at once to pick it. Mm-hmm. Right. All, yeah. and it's got to be about five tons. 
or do I just pick the top two portions, which I, might only yield me two tons, but then I have to bring the crew back in another week to 10 days to pick the middle to get the other three tons. Right. That's yeah. a cost decision, right? So, mm-hmm. so you've got cost issues there. You've got ripeness and phenolic ripeness issues there. You've got, okay, what's going to happen in the next two weeks? Is it going to rain, right? Well, it probably is. It's getting late into, into September. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can cab handle it? Yeah, I can handle it. So all these factors start coming into your head, which says, I need to get out in the vineyard and taste this thing because the numbers aren't going to show me enough. And I've got to make some educated sort of uh, assumptions here that realize that, hey, this is a Cabernet that I'm paying good money for and I want to make sure that it's done in the right way. Um, And then do I want to carry on with this particular vineyard if I don't like how this whole relationship in the vineyard is going for me, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's like, man, this is kind of a pain. (laughs) You know, all these things that I have to deal with on one vineyard, you know, which uh, just because of the site itself, um, you know, is causing some some ripeness issues and some phenolic ripeness issues. So all those things kind of go into my decision-making process and, and, and what I do and how I do it. Um, and, and every site is obviously different. So this is where site selection and vineyard selection is, is a big part of the, uh, is a big part of the journey and you're trying to make it easier on yourself, right? It takes a lot more to deal with two picks and two different bins and two smaller lots. Um, yeah, it gives you more control over each individual lot. You can, you know, select yeasts and do different things, punch downs and pumps overs and all these sorts of, of winemaker things. But in the end, you're just trying to make the best wine possible with the, with yeah. the best fruit possible. Yeah. So. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have like your own picking team or is that something that your growers provide to you? Growers typically provide it. So um, when the contract is typically picked and delivered, hopefully, um, sometimes it's just picked and not delivered. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not picked or delivered. <laughs> so <laughs> no. it kind of comes in three flavors. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get the whole vineyard, but we don't have a crew. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means I'm going to pick it with my dad and my brother, right, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, and and I can give you plenty of examples of that, like picking in 110-degree heat, oh my gosh. right, in 2017. That's well, crazy. That's, that's where, that's where, that's where I can officially say it was lucky I was born in Fresno, California. <laughs> so that's just another day in summer. Um, yeah, right. That's but then... Right. But then there's others, you know, other growers, um, that price will include uh, picking and delivering mm-hmm. of okay. the fruit to the crush pad. Okay. And, and so it really just depends on, on the, you know, are you buying a, a backyard vineyard of some guy, uh, you, you know, that, that loves to do his own work out in the vineyard and, and maintain mm-hmm. these vines. But when it comes to picking day, you're going to need a crew to come out there and pick it. And then you're going to need a truck to come back over to the custom crush facility and deliver it, okay. right? Yeah. And so those those prices either can be included or excluded, and uh, that's usually negotiated all up front. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's something we'll have to hammer out with whoever we're purchasing from. Gotcha. That makes yeah, sense. I had no idea. Well, good. And Correct. What, what varietals do you um, do you have at your winery? Yeah, so the varietals um, for me, uh, typically in terms of tides each year, it's uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, mm-hmm. Sangiovese, uh, Zinfandel, Merlot are, are usually the top the top four okay. um, in terms of tonnage. And it. then 
I like picking other things along with it. I do make a white wine. It's, it's usually a, a Semillon Sauvignon, mm. um, mm-hmm. Semillon dominant. And then uh, with the rest of the reds, it, it's a matter of, of what do we want to explore uh, the mm-hmm. space with. So uh, everything from uh, Barpera to Dolcetto to Alicante yeah. Boucher, uh, Petit Verdot, Cab Franc, uh, Malbec. Over here. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much that whole space, the, the, the whole Bordeaux space for sure. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Italian space is generally where I go next. And and I honestly haven't really done any any like Rhone stuff. Okay. Um, no, I mean Syrah maybe once. Yeah, Syrah was once, but I ended up blending it off because it was in a it was in a vineyard with Zinfandel, so we just picked the whole thing. It was a small one, mm-hmm. and then I think I got some Syrah from another grower, oh probably back in like 2012 or something like that. But again, it wasn't a lot, and I mixed it in. Uh, as a co-ferment anyway. So, okay. But those are, the, those are the primaries. Yeah. Awesome. What's your favorite varietal to work with? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm still a sucker for Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Uh, All without right. a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, um, Cab is, a, is just, you know, it's, I love the wine itself. I, mm-hmm. I like uh, what it can do. I, I, I've always appreciated it. Merlot is, albeit not everybody's favorite because they're like, oh, no one, you know, no one drinks effing Merlot, right? <laughs> um, from, from, from the from the movie, but the mm-hmm. but the truth of the matter is, is Merlot is a beautiful grape. It is a grape that can show incredible ripeness and plushness, um, but it can also give you all that green pyrazine, yeah, you know, definitely. bell pepper kind of thing too, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a matter of and this is this kind of goes back to those tastings right that, that I was that I mentioned prior, right. which is if you've ever had Massetto from Italy, Massetto is a hundred percent Merlot, and I've had I've had Massetto in a couple blind tastings at an Italian wine tastings um, here in the valley, mm-hmm. and each time in the blind tasting I'm a dead ringer for it to be Cabernet every uh-huh. time. And I'm wrong. And I'm going, I, I can't taste, I do not taste Merlot. I'm sorry, I don't taste any Merlot. And they do the reveal, and it's like, it's Macedo. And I go, dang, I've done this twice. <laughs> and and the thing is, is yeah, it's also a $600 Merlot from Italy. And oh, you're sitting yeah. there going, well, you've got to be kidding me. Like, nobody charges 600 bucks for Merlot. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is this, this that wine is, is to me, is it shows you where Merlot can go if you wanted to grow it in that direction mm-hmm. with that care and attention and, and, you know, everything you're babying that stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. it is being treated, you know, like it is a $600 wine, right? So yeah. you sit there and go, okay, that's the one extreme. And then there's that Merlot that everybody associates with is sort of thin and green and like, Oh, you know, it's Merlot and whatever. But, <laughs> It doesn't have to be that way, right? right. It, it can be just as plush and, and, and elegant and beautiful as, as any top-line Cabernet. All right. We actually haven't considered Merlot as one that we'd want to plant in our, in our future vineyard or work with it at a custom crush. We've been mm-hmm. looking at Zinfandel because Zinfandel is my favorite wine. It's Danielle's <laughs> love affair over there. <laughs> yep, I'm with you. 
And that was um, my earliest love affair was Infidel. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. But when I was 21, 22 years old, yeah, that the early love affair was 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 Infidel. Um, it's just, it's and gorgeous. it was you know Raffinelli's Infidel at a Dry Creek, right? Yeah. That was the that's that was the staple. That was the benchmark. Yeah. So it's just so good, and it has just like big bold flavors that you can mm-hmm. really just like I don't know, just. It takes a while for you to just unwrap all the layers of Zinfandel, I feel. Yeah. And that's how that's what I like about it. <laughs> yep. uh, and and it is a um, it, it's the one varietal that uh, as you work with it more, you'll you'll you know, the the bet the the ongoing bet you're gonna have on that crush bat, especially for the, with other winemakers is mm-hmm. will it finish fermentation? Oh god. And so <laughs> no. is a notorious <laughs> non finisher. Oh, and no. so, if you want to, if you want to go all in on Zen, I, I please, I encourage it. However, <laughs> be ready for it to halt at five bricks and do nothing. Oh, and then you're gonna sit there and go, "Oh my, what am I supposed to do?" <laughs> yeah. It's halted at five lot. bricks and it ain't done yet. And <laughs> now you're gonna learn how to do a restart protocol, and that that will be your trial by fire because yeah. you're gonna panic. Oh God! So, you know. Well, thank you for the work. Right, because you didn't learn that in school. <laughs> I yeah. did not. <laughs> so, what is the cause of a a halt in fermentation like that? At least with Zin. Oh man! If if, if I knew that, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> like, we, we don't know. Like, isn't no? it sometimes the yeast decided that it stops? It We're done says, here, right? Oh, like, this is Zin. We've had. You know, it's one of those. Things. <laughs> yeah. We've had enough of this Zin. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so with with Zinfandel, and I'm and I'm happy to talk about it because because Zin is 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 a great teacher. There's no doubt about that, right? Like mm-hmm. Zin has uneven ripening. Um, Zin is prone to shriveling on one end and water berries on another. Oh, uh, Zin <laughs> is 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 one that if you do everything right and it still comes in right, it can still be problematic. Right, it can be light on color, it can be real high pH, um, it can have, you know, a four pH and uh, a, a, a twenty six, twenty eight bricks. Right. Mm-hmm. So now you're sitting there going, well, okay, are you going to be a winemaker that's going to add a bunch of water because at twenty eight bricks it isn't going to ferment right um, into a decent wine. But with a four pH, you might also have to dump a bunch of tartaric in it. Right. Mm-hmm. So where are you getting that Zinfandel from? What is the vineyard management practices? Mm-hmm. So, again, that goes back to the the first steps, which is your involvement in the vineyard management I and know. and your site selection. Yeah. Right. So that your your chemistry isn't so whacked out um, that you don't know what to do with it. And you're going to have to learn off of that vineyard. I mean, I've been making you know, basically Cabernet and Zinfandel off of one vineyard now for 13 years for the most part. And so um, that's the dry farmed one. I mean, it it is truly a learning experience each year, right? Mm -hmm. 2011 was a super cool year. And so as a result, we didn't get anything off that, off that vineyard at all uh, in in 2011 Mm -hmm. um, from Zinfandel, right? Mm -hmm. Never ripened. Yeah. And, and it rotted out. Jeez. But in 2017, we were in a race against time because right. it was 110 degrees. Yeah, and and so mm-hmm. you, you learn a lot by the climactic issues that are, that are impacting at least Sonoma County, 
you're mm-hmm. learning a lot based on upon the site selection and the style of wine that you want to uh, eventually make. I have just had, like, I just have gained a huge appreciation <laughs> for any good Zinfandel. Yeah. I had no idea yeah. what a problem yeah. child it was. <laughs> yeah, it's a pain. I tell you what, it's it's easier. Uh, it, it, there are a lot of days where I'll tell you it's a lot easier to make Cabernet. Than <laughs> There's more expectations. Right. There's more expectations for Cabernet. Yeah. Because it's cab, right? Cab is king or pinot, mm-hmm. right? There's, right. there's yeah. greater yeah. expectations. But the number of issues that can come up during a season for Zinfandel uh, give you a greater appreciation for people that can make a really good Zinfandel every yeah. year. That's crazy and awesome. Thank you for sharing that knowledge yeah. that I have sure. no idea. Sure. Is there is there any other varietals that we should watch out for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what else? What other ones are you a fan of? I heard um, Zinfandel. What do you What do you like? Yeah, yeah. We were looking at. Um, uh, go ahead, James. Well, at least for winemaking, possibly this year, uh, Roussan is mm-hmm. on our list. Um, I don't know Barbera's one of our favorite at least straight varietals mm-hmm. um uh-huh. keeping an eye out for that what else maybe san giovese uh, we're gonna start out small i don't know that yeah. we'll do all but of these those, but... these are all options these are <laughs> right. things that we yeah. we yeah. we're keeping an eye out for if we can you know get a ton or a half ton yeah. of four custom crush this right. year yeah so sangio barbara and the Rusan. Those are the yeah, three. That aside we, from the Zen. Aside from the Zen. <laughs> I've got no experience with the Ruzan at all, so you're mm-hmm. you're on your own. Um, but with <laughs> Barbera and Sangio, um, I do, and Sangio's mm-hmm. a regular for me. Awesome. Um, is great to work with, honestly. I, I mean, from a acid point of view, I've never had any acid issues with it at all. It's great. Br- brilliant, beautiful acids. Um, I've never had... Uh, a bad fermentation. I've never, I, I, honestly, Sangiovese has been one of the easiest ones for me to work with. Oh, good. Um, from 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 beginning to end, I think it, it it. I don't think I've ever gotten over fourteen alcohol on any Sangiovese I've made. Mm-hmm. Oh. I've never added a, a drop of of tartaric acid to any Sangiovese I've made. All right. Well, that's good um, to know. It has natively fermented. Uh, it'll probably three times. Mm-hmm. where within 24 hours it was already going and it's like oh well i'm not doing anything it smells good um never had a stuck fermentation um never had i mean just literally like almost no issues and i've rotated different sangiovese vineyards over the last several years and and i've made sangio from um mendota i've made it from um uh russian river valley mendocino county uh, Dry wow. Creek Valley, uh, I've yet to have a problem with it um, at all. It's, it's oh, been a great, it's been a great varietal to work with. Well, mm-hmm. definitely writing San Giovese <laughs> down on my yeah, <laughs> my yeah, yeah. And list. you get the double, and you get the added benefit of being able to, if you want to make a, uh, if you want to make a rosé, mm-hmm. uh, again, you've got the component part to make yourself a little bit of rosé on the bleed off. Yeah. <gasps> I was literally just, (laughs) I was just going to ask you because National Rosé Day is on June 13th on Saturday, tomorrow. (laughs) So I was going to ask you if there was, you know, any varietal that you would choose specifically for making a rosé. 
Would that be Sangio? It's the only one that I've ever made it from. Yeah, oh, Rosé Sangiovese. In fact, it's going to be on my Insta tomorrow. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So and excited. I had no idea it was National Rosé Day. That one I cannot claim. I just yeah. put it in the queue. So, <laughs> yeah. When this comes well, out, it'll be two days ago. Yeah. So for our okay. listeners now, <laughs> okay. you missed Rosé Day. Sorry. <laughs> Dang it. Dang it. Yeah, no, Rosé of Sangiovese. So I've done it um, both ways. I've done it on mm-hmm. both a, a, a bleed-off uh, method and then a, a you know, more classic um, – method of, of you know harvesting it early and and going straight to straight to press with it and That's and making awesome. in in a much more of an old school you know european mm-hmm. style of, of rosé so i've done both um the 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 for some the added benefit of doing a bleed off is you can concentrate a little bit more of your flavors in mm-hmm. your base red wine sangiovese yeah. Um, and you're not having to do two, you know, two harvests where you're harvesting rosé early or uh, the rosé earlier and then mm-hmm. Sangiovese a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're just harvesting it once, bleeding it off, and and you got your rosé, you know, uh, kind of chugging along along with your along with your red wine base as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a great grape. So good. And also, I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on canned wine? <laughs> This is Daniel's Can crusade. Uh, it makes a great Aperol spritz. There we go. <laughs> so I like it. And would you ever consider yeah, makes... working with canned wine or like selling canned wine? Well, you, you know, I mean, look, I, you know, since I go to I go to different you know parts of California, I'm a regular Mammoth Mammoth Lakes goer um, mm-hmm. because they got a great wine culture back there and. The, the, well, this year is an you know an exception, but yeah. normally uh, they've got several festivals and 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 wine events back there, and and it brings a you know a large group in. So there's been some canned wine poured at the events, awesome, and uh, and some sparkling wine, uh, canned sparkling and things like that. You know what? Um, for a picnic, uh, for you know casual barbecue, uh, ice cold, uh, don't want to mess with glassware. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I drink it straight out of the can. No, that's um, that just, that's, I mean, it, you know, I have, but I'm not. You know, I, I can admit that. Yeah. But, but I, to, to be perfectly honest, I'd, I'd rather take a can of that sparkling. Yeah. Put it in a in a big old goblet with a bunch of ice and pour some aperol in there and, and a little slice of orange and make an aperol spritz out of it. Mm-hmm. For, that's uh, that's just my like I think it works great for that and it's convenient and mm-hmm. yeah and uh, you know no no reason to burn a whole bottle of champagne or or yeah. or prosecco for yes. that. Thank mm-hmm. you. So. That's exactly what my argument has been. <laughs> Danielle wants to yeah. do a canned wine down the road. <laughs> yes. If you couldn't tell already. If you, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can. Tell. If you can wine, I I will tell you this: if you're going to can wine, you need a specialized bottling line for it. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a that's going to be a logistical issue and not yeah. all portable bottling lines or mobile bottling lines can accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, it, it does seem to be popular, but I don't, you know, again, it, then it becomes a matter of distribution. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and so if you've got specialized markets for canned wine, it might work, but I think you got to do it in some volume in order for the cost yeah. benefit to calculate. And I think it's grown in popularity. I feel like that's going to be like the next kind of like craft beer movement kind of thing. We'll see. We'll see. But I think I, I've got a dollar on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know. That's like I said, I see different ones crop up from some good winemakers that have gone that can direction, but those can direction wines 
tend to be in um, in large distribution amounts. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. they've got some kind of bona fide distribution behind them, so they can move move all that volume. Um, because what, what my understanding is is that because you're dealing in a completely sealed uh, non oxygen environment mm-hmm. inside of a a can that has to be lined. Uh, you're looking at a wine that has a particular shelf life to it. Right. So if yeah. it's not moved inside of, I've heard as quickly as six months, uh, you're wow. getting a, a severe degradation in the product. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's not something that, I, that I've even thought to consider. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. It's like, yeah, that <laughs> says Diet Coke goes bad after X amount of time in the can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So does beer. And yeah, so right. when yeah. you're looking at a cork product, uh, a product with corking glass that has, you know, I mean, the shelf life there is obviously it can be years, um, but there's no issues with the, the, the non-oxygenation. So that's yeah. uh, that's something well, that I would consider okay. highly. Okay. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about mixed drinks early. Well, not mixed drinks, but nice wine beverages but so that was a very yeah. nice segue <laughs> into yeah. this question spritz, yeah. <laughs> um what is your favorite non-wine alcoholic beverage non-wine alcoholic beverage um so it would be uh one of two cocktails either a classic negroni cocktail or a classic manhattan uh, that sounds amazing mm-hmm. yeah. i don't think i've yeah. actually Those had would be the two. a negroni have I? James would know, but Negroni is is, is very very simple. One part mm-hmm. gin, one part sweet vermouth, one part Campari. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. that sounds so I, good. Yep. I know. At least I haven't had a Manhattan. I don't know if you have, Danielle, but I don't think so either. But have you had a Manhattan in Manhattan? Is my question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, many a time. <laughs> have you? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's one time. place too. Have yeah, that degree in fi- that degree in finance uh, uh, was uh, a, a prior career, so I was in Manhattan <laughs> fairly often. That's All right. awesome. And did you do a lot of travel with yeah. that as well? I did, yes. I um, historically, prior to, the, to me starting the wine, well, during the early days of the wine business, I was still doing mm-hmm. both. But uh, mm-hmm. I would travel somewhere along the lines of about him. Uh, I was I was known as well, was known as a one K or United Airlines, so I would travel <laughs> a lot in the domestic United States That's <laughs> for amazing. sure. So, That's so good. Hundred thousand miles, hundred thousand miles a year. Oh wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. That's yeah. more than we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just on United. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Every year. That's every crazy. year for almost ten years. Yeah. Holy moly! You were you even home? Yeah. Like, <laughs> did you live out of a suitcase? Yeah, no. At one, yeah, no. At one point in my career, it was uh, yeah, it was, it was right around that oh seven time. I. I uh, I actually lived in the Marriott Hotel in downtown LA. Oh my gosh! Um, part part time. Yeah. That's, that's because crazy. I was traveling so much. I didn't really need to pay rent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was cheaper to live in a hotel. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead, James. Sorry. I guess the real question is: now that you're in the wine business, you've got your winery going. Are you in one spot most of the time? Or are you still traveling quite a bit? For your wine business. Yes. 
Yeah, so in the I can I can give you those stats too. I I, I would well pre COVID <laughs> yeah. uh, world, right, right. Um, I would probably <laughs> do about thirty thousand miles a year in the car. Okay. Holy moly! Yeah, that's still quite miles. a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's... because I self distribute, so okay. I don't work through a distributor. I do work with a couple of brokers, mm-hmm. um, but I but I basically self distribute my wine, and I'm the chief salesperson for it. Going back to you know uh, our, our our pre-introduction, which was it it takes about two months to make wine from start to finish, and it takes about twelve months to sell it. Uh-huh. But that twelve months of selling is the road travel, right? Is the distribution angle to the wine business, mm-hmm. which awesome. um, in many cases is even more important. Um, there's a lot of plonk that that sells, and <laughs> there's a lot of great wine that doesn't. Yeah. So. Right. It's it's a uh, it's a it's a constant struggle because you're competing with a lot of uh, brand recognition. You're competing mm-hmm. with a lot of distribution and incentives and and uh, competition on a right. regular basis yeah. in bars, restaurants, wine shops, grocery stores, uh, online, everything. Right. Yeah. So uh, you you have to take advantage of all those channels. Yeah. So with that being said, where can people find your wines? Where do where do you distribute oh, yeah. to? Yeah. So um, online at uh, masteroshite.com, that's masteroshite.com, um, <laughs> or you can you find me on Facebook and Instagram. You can, you can always message me, uh, which is how we've communicated, obviously. Yeah. And, yeah. and then um, uh, the wines are basically sold from uh, Modesto South uh, to hmm. Palm Springs and then east out to Mammoth Lakes. And then uh, partially on the uh, central coast of California. So when you look at places like Santa mm-hmm. Barbara and San Luis Obispo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in uh, Orange places. County and mm-hmm. in places like Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach. And then in the Palm Springs and Palm Desert area as well as San Diego. Perfect. So the, the, the full list, yeah, full list of that is is online um, at Master Shite. And you can find it on Google because all the all my distribution points are updated on Google, but the easiest way to find out is just to, to call me and email me Perfect. Uh, could directly. You, could you spell yeah. Mastro Shite for the yeah. folks listening? Absolutely. It's, it's M-A-S-T-R-O-S-C-H-E-I-D-S-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-N-D-
And uh, down there at the heel, uh, it's horribly hot in the summertime. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, and so they they grow things that are like Primitivo, which is the the the, the cousin to uh, Zinfandel. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they have things like uh, Nero Diavola, Negro Amaro. Those types of varietals um, uh, grow incredibly well in these in these hot climates. Uh-huh. And so I, I'm a fan of those southern Italian varietals that I've had down there. Alianico is another one that's more in the Basilicata region. I'm but writing those down. Um, is, a, again, it's, it's Lagrine is another one that's more in the north. But, but those Italian varietals, and there's such a, you know, I mean, there's, there, there's so many. I mean, there's so many. You, I mean, you can list them all, right, in, mm-hmm. in one sitting. But those types of varietals, these these ones that are coming out of uh, Europe, which are generally, I mean, they're planted here, but they're in very very small amounts. Mm-hmm. They are esoteric to a lot of Americans. But if yeah. you're in Basilicata, you're probably drinking Alianico, right? Yeah. If if you're in Southern Italy, you're probably drinking Primitivo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you're in uh, a, a northern northeastern Italy, you're probably drinking Lagrime. And and so those these wines are are not you know played with a lot by American winemakers, but you can mm-hmm. definitely find them in the foothills. I know that these these varietals are represented mm-hmm. uh, in, in in small amounts, uh, and so those are the fun ones, right? Those are the ones that if I can find a little one ton here, one ton there, which is why I made Dolcetto last year. Yeah. Uh, I, working with a grower in uh, Lake County, uh, Kelsey mm-hmm. Bench area, so it's up about 1,500 feet off the deck. Okay. And and guess what? He's got all these little uh, he's got all these little uh, varietals that I'm mentioning. Mine's from Lagrine, but he's got mm-hmm. um, he's got Neradavola, he's got Negromaro, he's got Sagratino, he's got uh, Montepulciano, he's got uh, Dolcetto, Barbera, Sangiovese. Guess what? He's Italian, so go figure. Um, <laughs> he, pla- he planted all these things on his own, um, and and he was great to work with. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we, we're going to come to another agreement this year on picking something else up. Uh, last That's year was awesome. Dolcetto, mm-hmm. and uh, this year I don't know. We'll see what uh, we'll see what happens. I'm right. so excited. Yeah, something we at least I would like to do. We haven't talked too much about it, Daniel yeah. and myself but have a couple things that aren't necessarily super common in our future vineyard just to not necessarily play with, but see what we can make with them. Kind of, you know, right. how we how we treat them throughout the year and then also during the winemaking process, what we can do with them and not, not just be kind of the stock standard for wherever we end up buying property and planting our vineyard. Yeah, definitely. Sure, and, sure. And, and you'll find that, that it's again, it's another exploration, right? Like you're, yeah. you're oh yeah, you got to figure out what works, and then you got to have some fun with it too. And and that's where the uh, the exploration comes into play. And and again, I've you know I haven't worked with a lot of roans, but I've you know I've worked with with more Italian bridles, and maybe it's just because that's what I'm looking for. You know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm so excited to see what you guys come up with next. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll yeah. we'll see. I made Alicante Boucher two years ago, and and uh, Dolcetto this year. That this last season, we'll see what happens here in uh, in 2020. Perfect. 
All right. Well, David, thank you so, so much for being on our podcast with us. I yes, thank you. cannot I tell you. Oh, my gosh. We've learned so much in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I have. I've, <laughs> you, I've you learned have a lot. Okay, too, good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes I ask questions and James is like, I, I could have answered that for you. Oh, no. <laughs> I might have been able to answer it, but not as well as someone else. Yeah. David, you were absolutely well, amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so yeah. much. And, yeah. and thanks for the questions. Thanks for the dialogue and, mm-hmm. and the opportunity to uh, lend my voice to your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Please come on Excellent. our podcast anytime. Sorry. I have what? one more thing <laughs> before we let you go. Yes. Do you have any questions for us? Anything oh, yeah. that you... I don't know. Yeah. Any questions you think might kind of make us think about things differently? Yeah. Well, I hope that the the Zinfandel one was a was a was a was a good one. Yes. Uh, so, you know, so the trips tra- uh you know, the, the, the traps on that one. Mm-hmm. But um, what's the uh, what's the timeline for you guys? Um, um, putting out net, putting out your first your, you know your first vintage and <laughs> that sort of thing. That so is an excellent question. We will see. So um, we're gonna. Been... Drop the drop the ball. Oh, not drop the ball, but like, you'll be the first to know, yeah. the very yeah. first. Uh, to we've know. been in contact with a custom crush facility in El Dorado County, um, and Great. they just got back to us. They were kind of unsure Early. if they had space for us, um, mm-hmm. but we just heard today that they do have space, and we're looking to do maybe about three tons this year. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and are you going to do uh, how many different wines are you going to do? How many different varietals you want to we'll, play? We'll probably do three to four. Just, yeah. We have a couple growers in mind from Eldorado County. There's one place that I worked for way back in eighth grade. <laughs> um, oh. Help them harvest uh, some stuff um, that we know they sell a little bit of fruit each year. Might be able to buy some of their and a couple other places we've been in contact with mm-hmm. um so probably three tons max i think will be our budget this okay year. yeah um so yep. uh Roussan, like we said is something we've been looking at so we might have a little bit of that i will make it my life's miss- mission <laughs> to find sangio now yep. <laughs> yeah so maybe yeah. maybe if we if we can get our ducks in a row Maybe in a year or so, we'll have something on the market. Yeah. I, I would say quicker than that. And if, yeah. and if there's one more piece of advice, I would say mm-hmm. make the rosé. Okay. Because you can turn that rosé around for sale by January of 2021. All right. If you're going to make a white wine, make that white wine fresh and bright and light and turn that baby around at around the same time. Okay. All um, right. I may, my, my, I can tell you that I made my first vintage. I was seven, was exactly what you guys are doing. Three times it was, it was, um, you know, three fifty k slots, and I made all Cabernet, all three lots, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't, you know, basically I wasn't selling it for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and that was a mistake. Um, okay. mm-hmm. I should have made a rosé, a white wine, and an early drinking red. Okay. So I think you guys are doing exactly right in that, you know, Zinfandel is early drinking red. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pick up an Italian varietal, you can easily make it into a rosé, and you got a second mm-hmm. wine, and you make a white. Yeah. So now from a business standpoint, you've got cash flow to pay for your next vintage coming off of, and, and your existing vintage mm-hmm. coming off of the rosé and the white, and then you, you, you can release the Zinfandel 
by August of the, of the following year mm-hmm. and, and, you know, begin to sell that in a, in, in a, in a release um, or even an earlier drinking one, if you're giving some kind of a line around, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I, I mean, I would definitely look at, at making both the rosé and the white and releasing those immediately in January, February of the following year oh. of 20 of 2021 without a yeah. doubt. That is such good advice. I would do it. Again. Yeah. No, I would do it again because, because then you immediately get into the selling process. You immediately get market tested. You mm-hmm. immediately begin bringing in cash flow to pay for the vintage. Yeah. And if you only made red wine, you're already you're already thinking about the 2021 vintage, mm-hmm. and you haven't sold the bottle yet. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, start selling those bottles early. That's right. such good advice. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm just like mm-hmm. I'm pumped up after talking <laughs> talking to you, David. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just hope like ready to go. Some ideas for us. Yeah. Put yeah. some things into perspective. Something to think about. Something yeah. to think about. Oh my yeah. gosh. This has been so good. Do you have any other questions? No, I'm all out now. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any other questions? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. It's been a pleasure awesome. talking with you guys. Thank you well, so, so yeah. much. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us and giving us some good advice and lots of lots of good, deep information. Yeah. It's really... I think, yeah, my pleasure. Happy to, happy to dig in the weeds there for you. Yeah. Anytime. Well, thanks again, David. We really appreciate you having you making time for us. I was going to say you having us on, but we had you on. Anyway. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, yes. David. This was an amazing, amazing talk. And mm-hmm. we are so ready to get out there and start planning our vines already. We don't even have a property. And I'm just like, let's go plant them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by that, she means James, go plant them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna be out there. I'm gonna be yeah. doing my fair share of work. You better. But or else this is gonna be called James's Vineyard. <laughs> We're changing the name of yeah. the winery. Which no one knows yet. <laughs> That's right. Nobody knows the name of our winery yet. Yeah. We'll release that later. Well, we some won't. people do. Wait, hey, stop teasing <laughs> everybody. But again, thank you so much, David. We are really excited to have you on the podcast and you know, feel free to come back on the podcast anytime yeah. and give us advice. We'll absolutely keep in touch. Yeah. And do you want to do an Anne's Corner? Oh, yes. I feel like we should probably do an Anne's Corner. Anne Wofford <laughs> is constantly reaching out with us with little tidbits of great advice and She's information. Amazing. And this week, we have more. We do. We need so, a little bumper to play. Like, Anne's Corner. Ooh, let's record that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Anne listens to our podcast and she's taking notes while, while she's listening and writing into us, like with any kind of insights, um, information, like, trivia, or factoids. answers, answers that we've had in our podcast. Like, so in this email, yeah, she says, what I said. yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, she says, so we talked about, like, what are foils for when we had our interview with Marcy? Said, Why do we want it? Like, we don't need to put those on our future bottles. It just seems like a hassle. Yeah. So we talked to Marcy of Marcelay Vineyards, mm-hmm. uh, Marcelay Wines, mm-hmm. and um, we were like, yeah, we don't know what foils are for. And so this is what Anne said. They're really an outdated addition to the packaging, although many wineries do like to have them because they provide an extra layer of tamper-proof protection as well as a polished appearance. But originally, they were made of lead to prevent rats from chewing through the corks in the cellar. Ew. 
<laughs> What's you? That rats were chewing on the corks in the cellar. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't believe how much influence rats and mice and rodents have on your wine. Oh, God. Don't tell me. Don't We tell have me. ground squirrels that eat solubor, which is a boron supplement that we we apply f- as a foliar application. Ooh. Just white powder, and they tear open the bag and just eat it. That... Yeah. I feel like in the future we're gonna see like mutant squirrels and chipmunks <laughs> and just like, like they have boron poisoning. <laughs> they're it gonna be like them hoax. to have a genetic muta- mutation <laughs> where now all they eat is brains. Oh my god! Or they're gonna be like Hulk squirrels, like <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Back to so Anne. back to Anne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she did want to add. Uh, just to be totally transparent, I do give away wine, but I try, like James said, to be selective about how I do it. Giving a mm-hmm. bottle to another winery sales staff for their after-hours glass is a pretty is pretty good advertising. Marcy was totally right, has the right idea when she said that it's part of her marketing scra- strategy. It's always mm-hmm. a good way to keep goodwill alive on the road, too. Really great. And then we have another email from her. Okay. There's one that was like something fools. Anne had sent an email saying what fools are for, and <laughs> <laughs> it was a typo. What fools she... are for marrying and making your husband. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> she had meant to say what foils are for, yeah. so she was taking, yeah, taking notes. Made and... me laugh though. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> okay. So in another email from Anne, she said, here's why California wineries now have a meal requirement instead of just wine tasting. So we were wondering... I don't think we've covered on the podcast yet, but due to the whole COVID business. Yeah, we did. um, In one of our update episodes, we were talking about how um, the wineries in California are now required to have a meal with the wines, or like like not necessarily a a meal, but... There has to be some sort of food served with the wine tasting experience yeah. and the idea is that'll make people visit fewer places in a day because they'll be eating and drinking you kind of jumped the gun oh, that's sorry. exactly what we had already talked about that though we had talked about it off the podcast okay that's hard to it. keep it straight we talk so much <laughs> okay. all we do is so talk <laughs> here's why california wineries now have a meal requirement instead of just wine tasting even as california moves through the different reopening phases the emphasis is to stay local traveling between counties for non-essential business is discouraged and minimal person-to-person interaction is encouraged so people may flock to their f- favorite wine area several hours away to visit four or five wineries but they probably won't make a reservation for more than one lunch at a winery and it'll be probably closer to home hmm. that makes a lot of sense yeah so they're just trying to restrict the amount of of travel going on restrict With, the amount of people yeah. going out but and also by not necessarily restricting things but just i mean mandating like you have to serve food rather than like you have to check their id and put it into this database to see if they've right. been to other wineries today right exactly it's a i think a pretty clever way to go about it mm-hmm. that is like it is i mean i'm sure it is a bit of a headache for wineries but it's not i don't know it's not being too invasive by but also helping clamp down on people going to multiple places right in quick success succession yeah exactly yeah that's cool 
And then last point on Anne's emails, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about a Beaujolais wine, and I was like, what the heck is a Beaujolais wine? Beaujolais. Beaujolais. Um, so she says, it is a light wine, usually released in November. Obviously, you can Google more info. La Mancha was just made to La be a lighter. their oh. wine. Yeah, La Mancha is their wine. That so they released like after their first harvest mm-hmm. pretty early on. And she was saying they did that because they still had a back catalog of the previous, of the people who they bought the property off of their wine. But they wanted something to show that their own style sooner rather than later. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, Just that was good. Just the gap so in case someone's new listening, they know what Anne's talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she was just saying La Mancha was just made to be lighter early release and mm-hmm. higher acidity wine. Yeah. Thank you, well, Thank Anne. you, Anne. Oh, my gosh. You help us fill valuable time on our podcast every few weeks. <laughs> so thank you. And you help us answer all the questions that we have. <laughs> and you help just... us learn yep. and become better wine people. Yep. With That's that good. being said, you can follow us at voyagetofirstvintage.com. Voyage to First Vintage on Instagram. At and Voyage, on Facebook. Yeah. At Voyage underscore First on Twitter. Where else, Danielle? We're on Patreon still. Yeah. You just do a quick search, Voyage to First Vintage. Yep. Our website's getting filled out a bit better day by day. Yeah. We, We've got we some have... posts up describing who we are, what the big idea is. We've got all our episodes up there. We're going to try and get some more like bloggy posts up just kind of i don't know filling in some of the background details i guess and i'm also really excited about this my favorite murder is one of my favorite podcasts and i just sent an email in to them talking about james's encounter with yes with murder oh maybe be a wine crime episode because i'm in wine and i witnessed a crime that's right stay tuned for that one we should do that one Next. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> next we've got another another exciting episode for oh you guys next week. Stay uh, tuned. We'll be with L. Rodriguez of the Modern Poor. Yes, and she is absolutely fantastic. She is. She is another person that Justine. Osilla. Yep. yep turned us on to, to talk mm-hmm. to, um, and we're really thankful for that because we had a great time talking with l as well great conversation that was yes. really cool if you we haven't learned a ton yeah if you haven't already go on to instagram and follow the modern poor um mm-hmm. she is the second latina in the whole world of wine influencer on instagram yeah. so but she... she is i think the biggest like has the biggest reach right that's what she was saying i think so i don't know she compared to us she is huge yeah that's right she and is wildly successful compared to any piddling stuff we do that's right and she's but got we're very thankful for her to take some time to talk to us yeah she's got lots of great ideas great insights and great things in the work she's got yeah. bigger things going for her oh yeah she's she's not just sitting still for sure that's right yeah, yeah. anyway with that being said we will catch you guys in a week stay safe Stay well, stay healthy. Stay sexy and stay drunk. Stay drunk? <laughs> I don't know. No, no what? Don't stay drunk. <sighs> stay sane. 
Stay sane. Bye. Bye.